0: everyone. Thanks for joining us on the All Might Be Edified discussions on servant leadership. I'm Keith Pankow and I have the amazing privilege to be here with Taylor Lamb. Taylor Lamb is a captain in the United States Coast Guard and he's currently assigned to Sector San Francisco as a sector commander. Captain Lamb assumed command of Sector San Francisco in June of 2021. As Sector Commander, he leads 600 active reserve and civilian Coast Guard members operating three cutters, seven small boat stations, and an, an aid to navigation team, a vessel traffic service, and a marine safety detachment, and more than 1,000 Coast Guard auxiliarists. His area of responsibility spans from the Oregon border to San Luis Obispo County line, and much of Nevada... Utah, and parts of Wyoming, and includes 2,500 miles of shoreline within the San Francisco Bay and its tributaries. His duties and responsibilities include captain of the port, federal on-scene coordinator, officer in charge of marine inspections, federal maritime security coordinator, and search and rescue mission coordinator. Captain Lamb is a native of Riverside, California, and enlisted in the United States Coast Guard in 1996 through the College Student Pre-Commissioning Initiative, or C-SPY, and graduated from basic training in Cape May, New Jersey. Upon completion of his undergraduate studies, he graduated from Officer Candidate School 1998 at New-, New London, Connecticut. Prior to this assignment, he completed an assignment at a National Security Fellow at the Belfort Center for Science and International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. While in command, he recently completed a one year executive leadership program at the Naval Postgraduate School Center for Homeland Defense and Security in Monterey, California. He is a 1998 graduate from the University of California, Riverside, earning a Bachelor of Arts in psychology, a 2005 graduate from Boston University with a master's of arts program in criminal justice, and a 2011 graduate from College of William and Mary's master's program in public policy. Well, Taylor, so excited to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Keith, and thank you for this opportunity. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast with you.
0: Me too. Now, when I was first getting to know Taylor and doing a little research and talking to him, I came across this amazing article that Taylor's name was attached to. We we kind of laughed because even Taylor didn't know why his name was attached to it, but it was just a great article of Coast Guard history. And many of you might not know that one of the founding organizations of the Coast Guard is the Lighthouse Service because we you know have a great history of saving lives in the Lighthouse Service. You know, providing lighthouses for mariners and knowing where the shoreline is in those great storms and many of the historic records show that the Asian American members and the Pacific Islanders, the historic, the first members were actually not members of the Coast Guard, but they actually go way back to the lighthouse service in the late 1800s and the 1900s, early 1900s. And so Taylor's name was attached to this article and it got us talking about, it's important to know our history and just thinking back about, you know, these deep roots of Asian Americans and how long they've been serving the country even back in the lighthouse service and you know the members on the Hawaiian Islands and the Pacific Islands and how long they've been keeping those lights burning for mariners and the deep roots in the maritime industry and just a wonderful presence and and Taylor shared a story with me that he was the first member of his family born in the United States and that the rest of his family was all born in Vietnam and even has a history serving with the U.S. forces in Vietnam, so Taylor, I I had a hard time unpacking that at, after we left there. Our discussion after that, and I I just wonder, you know, what kind of influences does that do for you as you serve the country, and how did that lead up to your decisions, if at all, coming into the, your service for the country?
1: Absolutely, gosh, what a great question! Thank you so much. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, and we talked about this earlier, but. I didn't realize this until I got a little bit older that my family, going back to my father and his brother, my uncle, they have had really a long history of military service. And so as you alluded to earlier, my father served in the Vietnamese Air Force or what constituted Air Force flying planes. And my uncle was in the Vietnamese army working alongside U.S. military members during the Vietnam War. And it's interesting because I think at some point my father became so... Enamored with the U.S. military and our culture and our ethos and our leaders, that after the fall of Saigon, um, you know, my my father and, and my mother, my older brother and two older sisters, they fled Vietnam and they came to the U.S. and I was born in all places of uh, New Jersey, uh, New Jersey in the U.S. and my father named me Taylor, which is, as you might imagine, kind of an unusual name for a, a Vietnamese American, someone just u- new to the, the states. And I learned later in life that he named me after U.S. Army General Maxwell Taylor. And if you do the history there, you'll find that General Taylor was a longtime friend and ally to the Vietnamese people as they fought against communism in that country and during that conflict. So I think going back to my father and uncle's service in the military, working alongside the U.S. And then when we got to the States, as my, my brother got older, he actually joined the U.S. Army and was a, a veteran during the first Desert Storm Gulf War. Got out, went to school in the traditional GI Bill. Heard about the Coast Guard. Talked to me about the Coast Guard. That's probably another topic entirely. But I think to your earlier point, I just have become so proud about learning a about my lineage, uh, my heritage, but also about the amazing um, Asian American Pacific Islanders that have served across the U.S. military and certainly our U.S. Coast Guard over the years. It is really proud to learn about that history for sure.
0: Yeah, that's just so amazing, and what a great namesake too. And you know. I know that you talk a lot about, and we're going to get to your command philosophy in a little bit, and maybe this is a good segue, but you talk a lot about you know, representing your heritage, but also taking that and going a step further and representing all the people that you have the privilege of leading and not just making sure you represent one culture or one person. And what a great legacy that your father or your uncle left for you of already bridging that cultural divide and looking at how you can work with different cultures. And and just from this early start of your life and- do you think that that had any influence on you for thinking about how you bridge cultural influences and how you work together across those, how you bridge those cultural divides at an early age?
1: I think absolutely for sure. I mean, even though I was born in the States, right? Like I was, even as a young child growing up of all places, Southern California, which I would argue is very much a melting pot for the country. I was still very cognizant of my Asian American heritage and how the majority of my friends were uh, Caucasian or Hispanic American or African American. And so there weren't actually, to believe it or not, a lot of Asian Americans at my school when I was growing up in elementary school. But I think the one thing that it taught me, Keith, was that um, we all come from a unique place of culture and tradition and just looking at life in a certain way. And I think you'll probably agree with me that when we talk about things like diversity and, and inclusion, it's a reminder to us all and certainly to me that each one of us with our unique insights and experiences collectively makes us a better military service, a better team, a better organization. So I definitely try to incorporate that into our command philosophy and how we lead and manage her.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I recently had the opportunity to listen to the nominated perspective CNO of the Navy, which if she's confirmed will be the first female CNO of the Navy, Admiral Franchetti. And she was talking about just the research on... Diverse teams and how when we bring diverse teams together and we do it well, they, they just make us better. They, the research bears out. They, you know, we bring, we bring those ideas together and they, they help us realize our blind spots. So I just have really appreciated the way you talk about that, the way that we represent everybody together and we think about that. Just such a remarkable way to think about those things. And I really appreciate the way that you're mindful of looking out for those blind spots early on and. That's why I think it is a good dovetail of moving into your command philosophy right now, because you have this wonderful command philosophy and you sent it to me, and I I know we can talk a lot about it, but really the thing that I think is remarkable about your command philosophy is the way it was created. And I think this is a great model for us as aspiring servant leaders to talk about this way this was created. And so- I don't want to steal your thunder. I know you already told me about it, so I just want to throw the reins to you. And can you tell the listeners just how you work with your command staff there to envision this and create it, and then how you took it out to the the team there?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to, Keith. So it's interesting, you know. As you know, being a retired Coast Guard officer, you're familiar, no doubt, with the assignment process. Every year, when you get that phone call, when you get those set of orders, and so after I climbed down from the chandelier. And my house after I found out where I was coming, the <laughs> sector of San Francisco of all places, just the crown jewel, in my in my opinion. And then I found out who our deputy commander uh was going to be. It's Captain Jordan Baldeweza, who I think you've worked with in the past and know, just an amazing leader. You know, Jordan and I have known each other for the last 17, 18 plus years. We've known each other since we were lieutenants. And we kind of grew up in a similar community within the Coast Guard. And when we found out who our new command master chief was going to be. We started instantly doing the intelligence research behind the scenes. Who is this person? Where is he coming from? Where is he at? And we found out that he was a longtime aviator. So a lot of rotor wing helicopter time. He was an aviation electronics technician. He was a master chief. And he was serving at US Army Sergeant Majors Academy in El Paso, Texas. Jordan at the time was serving at a sector at Houston Galveston, Texas. And I was physically in Virginia uh, doing my senior service school program completely virtually online. Obviously, COVID was still very much in effect. And as soon as we found out who we we're going to be working with as a kind of a senior leadership team together, we instantly started to get on Zoom sessions, funny enough, for monthly coffee sessions. And it was really an opportunity to say, hey, this is who I am. This is my background. These are my beliefs. How do you feel about leadership? What are your pet peeves? You know, What do you believe ought to be the core tenets of what we strive for as a leadership team to develop, to support, advocate for our crew members. So over the period of several months, we talked about what were important to us in terms of values. And we talk about values, clearly the Coast Guard has its core values, but a little bit deeper on a a deck plate level, we wanted to talk about how we would lead, how would we would communicate, and what would be the tenets by which our team would understand kind of our moral compass, if you will. And so we started to share ideas. And we started to put down pen to paper and we ended up coming up with, as you've seen, three major tenants with sub bullets below them with a little bit more meat on the bone, if you will. And when we got here in the summer of 2021, we started to have kind of mini, I want to say listening sessions or conversations with members of the chief's mess and members of our wardroom, not on a large scale, but to really talk through some of these core values and firm belief systems that we had. And then when we refined it to a certain extent, we sat down and talked about it. We're happy with it. We signed all of our names to it and we have it framed prominently across the command. And we even talked about it during our very first all hands after the change of command weekend had gone by. And I think it was a start to something really special in terms of aligning expectations and letting the team know who we were at the core of our belief system and our value system.
0: Yeah, I really like that. And now, just in case people don't have a military background, I want to kind of frame this a little bit. So you've got your commanding officer, your executive officer, and so on. Kind of non-military terms, the commanding officer really kind of sets the tone, decides where the unit's going to go. The executive officer decides how that's going to happen, right? How they're going to pay the bills, how they're going to make sure command decisions are made, and you know, a lot of things like that. They, you know, a lot of times in, in the military speak, we say the the commanding officer is out, kind of meeting and greeting people and the executive officers out, kind of make setting the tone and making a lot of the hard decisions and they they look grumpy a lot of time because their jobs are really hard. So we not always the case, but that's a lot of times the interpretation of what is going on. It, it takes a, a lot of hard work to be a, a smiling, happy executive officer. And when you find one, you you really have to thank them a lot of times because it, it is a hard job. So and then you've got we which we either call a gold badge or a silver badge, depending on the term, which is either master chief or a senior chief, which is basically your your senior enlisted advisor, and it's there to do a lot of advising. The command commanding officer and the executive officer on all workforce matters, um, mainly the enlisted workforce, but they also do a lot of training of the junior officer corps. So they also do a lot of advising on the junior officers. So they they are really a key component of that that team there because they're really bringing up matters of the workforce to that command team as well. So they work together. They built this idea, but then they they reached out to those the officer corps, which we would call the wardroom, and then the chiefs mess, and then also probably the the enlisted workforce and different junior officer corps. So that's what he's talking about as he mixes with these groups of people. So now I wanted to set that framing as we dive into some conversation. So you you alluded to the fact that you you didn't present them a signed copy. You presented them, what I'm imagining was a draft copy. So there was there some give and take on this? Did you take any of their feedback and make any changes?
1: For sure. And, and so we have a, a saying that you're probably very familiar with, right? Is sometimes, you know, when you have a new leader come into command... Sometimes there's a tendency to, as we say, move the lawn chairs around because you can move the lawn chairs. You're you're the, the senior person. But we and I have always subscribed to this notion that you come into a new command, a new unit, a new organization, and you look around and you listen to and try to get a sense of the dynamics at play. You certainly ask a significant amount of questions, but your sense is really to try to determine... How things are going. What are people most concerned about? What, what resonates most with them at that particular time? What are the said as well as unsaid things that people are particularly concerned about? And just try to facilitate a climate or an environment where people feel like they will be listened, that their feedback will be incorporated. And so we had those types of conversations in kind of smaller group settings to just understand what were the experiences that people had from previous years. And obviously, as you know, A lot of what people were feeling was amplified by the COVID pandemic and this feeling of isolation and maybe a lack of connectedness with other components of the team here. And that was internally as well as externally beyond our command for obvious reasons, I think. And so we definitely incorporated a lot of feedback. We heard what was on people's minds and we did make some modifications and we really wanted to understand the space environment first before we come in with a signed copy without understanding where people were at and then saying here's our command philosophy read it understand it let's live it no we wanted to take a more mindful deliberate approach to understand you know what was resonating with people what was important to them and then incorporate that into something that we could all be proud of
0: take command in 2021 so we're right heart of COVID you know you're planning hopefully to come out of COVID were there any surprises that when you had these small group meetings that kind of you had to Recenter and make maybe make some modifications that you weren't expecting.
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. So I think the biggest thing that caught me off guard a little bit was the set in sense of inertia that had been put in place. Right. So you hear a lot about bubbles of pods of people or groups that were established so that if one or two people in that group became ill for whatever reason, you didn't negatively impact all these other groups that had to stand a a watch or be ready to deploy at a moment's notice or respond to a mission in the maritime domain. And I think that sense of inertia was seen within kind of our lifelines, if you will, within the organization across our different departments and divisions and teams. But I would argue that that sense of inertia was also seen with our local, state and federal industry partners. As you know, I would say that one of the Coast Guard superpowers is our ability to bring uh, various groups together with sometimes competing equities and interests and goals and objectives, and to try to meet regularly with those folks to make sure that we're all aligned in terms of whatever that be, maritime safety, security, environmental protection, emergency management, to make sure that we're all aligned and working towards a common purpose in, in similar fashion. And so I think the biggest thing, Keith, that surprised me was just the overwhelming sense of inertia where people had just grown accustomed to being siloed, if you will, and not getting together in a way where you could exchange ideas and have information flow to make us more integrated and aligned within the port complex and within the region. And so that definitely took some concerted effort to make sure that we got back to that space.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I I was talking to One of my colleagues that I've done a bunch of research on on my doctorate and we, we brought up this article about the, the growing, you know, concern of loneliness in United States. And I think it's a worldwide problem, but COVID exacerbated this. It, It was existing. It was kind of social media and the way we connect. And then you sent me over this wonderful YouTube video of Brene Brown, who I love. I listened to her podcast, but she talked about the difference between empathy and sympathy, right? And you sent, you sent this over and, and you know, I think. We think we understand this difference a lot of times, but we really don't very well. And especially in action, we really, that's where we might intuitively, you know, intellectually think what the difference between empathy and sympathy is. But then in action, when we're called upon to go do those things, we really struggle. And what she closed with is what really stuck with me. More often than not, our words aren't going to solve the problem but our connection is what people need, and that goes back to everything you're saying—that people need that connection. You know, this this growing phenomenon of loneliness, these pods, this the inertia that's pushing people down, and you know that it's interesting. So I think as you as you've looked at this command ph- philosophy and how you work to bring these small groups together, which I'll tell you in our research that I've done, we found that too often we put people in large groups to convey information, and we want one of the reasons why we don't get any feedback is because people are m- more comfortable sharing feedback in small groups. So kudos to you because you did the right thing to actually get that feedback when our natural response, and this is a good to all you organizations out there that are trying to get feedback or be more servant leader minded, small groups is the way people feel comfortable. So how do we, how did you use this command philosophy or what were some of the things that you observed coming out of this that maybe led to more... Greater connection in your individuals.
1: Wow. Thanks for pointing that out. I think the, the one thing that I would highlight in response to your question, Keith, is you know, in, in our command philosophy, we talk about the idea of resilience, right? And so I think it was like the morning after the Friday change of command, literally, when we had the entire team together our, all of our senior leaders, all of our enlisted members, our officers, our, our civilians. I think we had some of our Coast Guard auxiliary members, which is our, for the for listeners, that's our all volunteer force. That helps out the Coast Guard in so many ways. And when I got to the issue or the topic of resilience, I really want to make it clear. I made it very clear, I think, that just kind of stating the obvious that, you know, in my now 27 years of military service, I had never seen the level of stress and overwhelming pressure that our folks had been experiencing and exhibiting as I had over the last couple of years. And you might point to the pandemic, you might point to social media or societal issues or or partisan politics, whatever you want to point to. And I think it was just, maybe it was one of those sigh of release that when we had that conversation that, hey, look, mental health is real. Emotional resilience is real and we need to keep talking about it and we need to keep breaking down the stigma of you know there's an issue when you talk about it or when you seek out a chaplain or a counselor or some type of mental health professional and i i will tell you that when you talk about resilience and you talk about wellness i think that our team has seen through actions and conversations about how important we take it and so as an example if i could we're very fortunate here because we have in the coast guard on the west coast We have a behavioral health psychiatrist and we have behavioral health technicians, and they have been so instrumental in terms of engaging with our crew at a number of different levels, not just in terms of the different missions that they are in charge of responding to and coordinating, which, as you know, can be sometimes tragic. Sometimes they can be traumatic, especially when you talk about things like search and rescue. But those folks have been really instrumental in just dealing with everyday kind of life, home, personal, family type issues that start to become overwhelming at times. And so that's an area where we continue to kind of lean in with our members. And I think we're at a place where our folks really understand how important we take it, that it's not lip service and that we're there to talk about it and to go through it and sit in that space where people say, I'm not expecting you necessarily to solve everything and give me four solutions to address this, but I just need you to understand that I'm not in a good place right now and I want to talk about it and I need your support. And so I think that's important to be there and to keep pushing that.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think this is a good opportunity to kind of take a pause and issue the challenge for this week's episode. And, and to think about that, when people come to you with something challenging and or something that they might want to share with you is to think, how do you respond to that? You know, Are you preparing to listen to respond or are you listening to hear? And are you more concerned about how you're giving words back Because remember, the words aren't going to solve the problem. So remember, connection is key. So focus more on your connection. And if you don't have the words to say, that's okay. Because those words aren't going to solve the problem more often than not. There's some rare occurrences where you might be the right person at the right time that's going to have the right words to say, but that's maybe a pretty low percentage. So I think if you can build that connection and just be there for that person and connect them if needed, to the right, like Taylor's saying, when we have the right mental health professionals, if that's the right path they need to go down, then that's the right avenue. And then to continue to be that connection point for them as a friend, as a peer, as a mentor, whatever that connection point is. So think about that and put yourself out there a little bit more to be a connection point to people because a lot of people right now are struggling with needing more connections. And one way that you can get more connections in your own life is by being a connection to another person. So that's the challenge for this week. I hope you take me up on it. I'd love to hear about any successes you had on that and different social media posts. So any other thoughts you have on your, any other ways you built connection with your command philosophy and just throughout the command there, Taylor?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I would say um, communication. So under one of our pillars, we talk a lot about the need to communicate horizontally and up and down the chain of command. And we try to do that a number of different ways. I know that sometimes email gets fatiguing. (laughs) There's eye strain when you're staring at that monitor. So it's something that we as the senior leadership team have tried to stay away from. So it's a lot of the all hands events when you get folks together on a monthly basis. And then you have we have what's called also fallout gather around events that also happen um, each month as well. So every two weeks we'll get the team together And it's just a quick opportunity to either recognize folks, either formally or informally, pass kind of the latest news, talk about some of the most salient issues that folks may be seeing or thinking about in the service. But more importantly, I think what we've really strove, we strove to do over the last couple of years and we're continuing to do better on is really just walking around and checking in with folks where they're at. And so I'm just going to give a huge shout out to our command master chief, Travis Cutler, who's, he's super engaged and he's really setting the bar for us to follow him. But you know, just really walking around to where folks are in their office spaces, out on the pier, if folks are working on the boat, if they're walking to and from an engineering department, and just really stopping over a cup of coffee, no agenda, just saying, hi, how you doing? How's your weekend? Anything going on? Oh, wow, that's great. How'd your son's soccer game go over on Saturday? That's awesome to hear. And I think maybe you'll agree with me, Keith, is that it's those conversations where they're not necessarily structured or scheduled or set with an agenda or format sometimes you get the most insightful bits of of points and data and perspectives from your team that they wouldn't otherwise give you in a formal all-hands event or a fallout gather around by the flagpole kind of event as well. So that's what we try to do more of and we're going to keep doing that.
0: Yeah, I really love that. And I just returned from a conference that Admiral Orr, who was a former guest on this podcast, I got to interact with her again. She was talking about how that we probably need to over-communicate more than we think we're over-communicating because too often we're really under-communicating even when we think we're over-communicating. And I think that's really true. And when we really look at communicating both vertically and horizontally, a lot of times, especially email communication or whether we have instant messaging, depending on what your organization uses, if it becomes the normal means of communication, there tends to be a formality that creeps into that Method of communication when it becomes the norm in your organization. It just happens naturally, no matter what you try to do to limit the formality. And so you have to create these methods to bypass that, to continue to have that over communication. I was just reading an article that talked about how Gen Zers, a lot of them think the thumbs up emoji is passive aggressive. And so, you know, we have to, w- what do people think is communication, first of all? So are you multi generationally communicating in the right way? You know, a lot of times, you know, on your instant messaging service in your organization, they only allow certain emojis because that's just the way we work. And if one of them is the thumbs up emoji, you might be sending the wrong message because, you know, that's what it is. A lot of times we only want to just send a blanket email because we think we're just mass communicating when really we have email fatigue, like Taylor's saying. So you really have to think about what is my message? Who do I want to receive it? How do I want them to receive it? And, you know, am I sure I'm communicating to the right audience?
1: I love I love those points for a number of reasons. One, you mentioned Admiral Orr, who clearly is a phenomenal leader, and she definitely knows how to communicate. Number two is it's funny that you talk about the emojis. Uh, I was literally yesterday having a conversation with our command master chief about this, and he learned for the first time that certain emojis meant something completely different to his teenage daughters, <laughs> and he thought, you know, that there's a green one where it looks like the person is sick. Almost, they're almost sick. And he said, oh, I, I've used that before in the past thinking, gosh, I'm not feeling so great. But really, I think some interpretation from others could be that you're really offended or you're really put off by something that they just messaged. So <laughs> we're still very much learning that language. And if I could just drop this in quickly, you talk about the concept of over-communicating. And so I want to give a shout out somebody who i had worked with years in the past, Captain Sam Stevens, the Coast Guard officer, he was very fond of saying something when I used to work with him at headquarters, he would say, better that you have it twice than not at all. And so I've always subscribed to that notion that, you know what, maybe I think I'm communicating at the right level and frequency and scope, but just to make sure, I'm going to get it out there one more time, just to make sure that everyone's clear on, on where I stand on this issue. So I really appreciate those points.
0: Oh, and Sam's gonna love that you gave him a shout out. I was with Sam last week as or this week as well, and I told him I was gonna be recording with you. And he says, Oh, that's my battle buddy. So he's gonna be so excited. And and Sam, I didn't prompt him at all. That came naturally, just so you know. So <laughs> that was beautiful. Good people <laughs> Switching gears with this communication. This is perfect too because the type of communication matters as well. When we're not communicating right, we can set a tone in our organizations. And what happens when we set a tone that people are too afraid to admit they did something wrong or they're, yeah. you know, or that they'd made a mistake? We we want people to have creativity in their workplace and we want them to take chances, but we also know that they have to do their best. But in order to do their best, sometimes they do make mistakes. So how do we set that tone where they can own those mistakes and then we can try things and, and do it in a safe way in our organizations?
1: I love that question. And so you know, Keith, you and I have talked before a little bit about this, but the retired former vice command of the Coast Guard, former TSA administrator Pete Baffinger, you know, he still is out there teaching and served as guest speaker in a number of different organizations. And in one of the programs I, that I went through recently, he talked about the importance of how, as leaders, you give permission. Right? You give permission in terms of the culture that you set there. You give permission in terms of what is deemed acceptable. In the workplace, in terms of team dynamics and how you communicate and how you treat each other. And I think when you ask that question about sitting in a culture where people can understand that it's okay to make mistakes, that it's not the end of the world if you do that. That was one of the things that we in our senior leadership team have really been trying to be mindful of. In fact, as an example, if we're in a briefing session and maybe there's a slide deck up there with some slides and information, we call that the morning brief. And we talk about operations that have have occurred over the previous 24 hours or 48 hours. And there's a a gazillion bits of information on these slide decks. And sometimes, especially when we reported in two years ago, there's kind of this, uh uh-oh there's an error on the slide or this, I don't have the exact answer that the captain or the commander asked about. Am I going to ha- have my head bitten off? And it was really important to me to set the tone at the outset. And our leadership team has done this as well, where it's like, no, that's okay. No problem. Just fix it. We'll move on. Or just circle back with me later. No problem. No big deal. But I think also as a leader, especially as a senior person, and I have an example I'm happy to share, but when you make mistakes, I think it's important to say, hey, I totally made an error on that one. I'm going to learn from that and I'm going to address it. And so if I could really quickly, we had kind of a tough case last year and it was a search and rescue case. I won't go into too many specifics, but you know, it was a case that we managed. And, you know, as you know, sometimes we put out press releases to talk about, you know, how the Coast Guard responded and just general facts about the case. And I remember when our public affairs officer within our team here sent me the, the, Draft press release, you know, there's information about where the vessel was found, how close to shore it was or it wasn't. And this was one of those cases where it was really, it really affected a segment of our community in the maritime industry that it really impacted them a number of ways. A, they lost someone from within their community due to a very tragic circumstance offshore. And B, um, the vessel was not salvageable based on what occurred during this incident. And so myself, when I reviewed the press release, I thought, okay, well, here's information. Here's what was initially reported. Looks good. Let's send it out. The problem was when we sent out this press release, we learned later that the vessel wasn't actually where it was initially reported to be. And that further inflamed concerns from this segment of the industry. And, and we definitely heard about it. And I will tell you, Keith, that after a discussion with my senior leaders, you know, my supervisors with my team internally, we said, we're going to address that and we're going to correct it. And we did, but it actually led us down a road where we said, Hey, we need to really meet with a segment of the community to make sure that we kind of clear the air on this particular case and what happened. And, and just so they understood all the facts of what happened, because there's lots of different misunderstandings of what actually occurred. And in the process of sitting down, and preparing to meet with the community to really mend those issues and address those issues, I actually welcomed our team to, if you will, prepare me for that potential engagement with the community. And so that was an opportunity for them to kind of really ask me some very pointed questions and just to make sure, was I really prepared to go into this community engagement and really address this very sensitive issue? And I think in that space, it also allowed my folks, many of them very junior to me to say, hey, the captain is willing to let us really poke and prod and make sure he's ready for this so that we do what we need to do, which is present the facts as they actually are, but more importantly, represent the service in a very positive light to reinforce the public's confidence in what we do every day. So I think that might be one example of that.
0: Yeah, that's also just such a a beautiful representation of your command philosophy of professionalism. And since the the listeners don't have it in front of them. I just want to call it out. Always look for ways to develop yourself and others, never settle for the bare minimum. And so it put forth the effort to achieve the next level of certification, advancement, promotion, or education. And our absolute best effort is what the public and our teammates deserve, nothing less. And so what what a way to lead from the front, what a way to be vulnerable to your staff, to your the people you lead, to let them You know, see that to say, Hey, look, nobody's above this and this command. You can call me out. You can, you can test me. I'm going to put my best self forward in front of all of you so that I can go be the best representative of this community and the taxpayers to everyone out here. So I just, I thought that was just such a good example that I, I wanted to say that in front out there. So love it. It's thanks for sharing that story with everybody, Taylor. I just really appreciate that. And that goes along with your philosophy on command climate too about you say we can't we can fake the words but we can't fake the actions. And that that's a perfect example of that. Can you expound on that a little bit as well?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. So I will tell you at this point in my career, one of the things that makes me most proud is cultivating and enhancing and building upon a climate where people know and feel And understand that they're trusted and that they're respected and that they're empowered. And so I think, you know, from your time in uniform and out of uniform, you know, when you go to any organization, I would argue, and you talk to folks varying levels within their organizational structure, you get a sense, you get a picture of the dynamics at play. And some of it's spoken, but I would argue a lot of it is unspoken. And so for instance, if you're in a meeting with the boss and mid-level managers and junior folks, I think you get a real sense of how free people feel in terms of being able to use their voice to express an opinion or to make a suggestion or to even disagree with a sense of reasoning and rationale and to understand if disagreements are even welcome within that particular climate. And so I've always been a firm believer that when you go somewhere, the walls talk. If you just stop and listen enough and understand what that space is like. And so I will tell you, that is something that we have tried to build upon here, where we tell people, I don't have all the answers. And uh, (laughs) and newsflash, all the senior leadership, we don't know everything. In fact, there's a lot that we know that we don't know. And the only way we make the best decisions to be mission effective, to make sure that we mitigate risks to our people that I think you agree, do oftentimes an inherently dangerous mission day in and day out to serve and protect the American public, you don't get to that location unless you genuinely welcome everyone's input and perspective, which could very well be different from yours. And I think the last thing I'll throw in there just for consideration is a practice, which I'm sure you've seen throughout your career, but it's something that I always continue to do here. So when we're in a mixed meeting with junior folks, senior folks, uh, mid-level folks, when we go around the room to ask for input and, and perspectives and opinions, I'll always start with the most junior person. And I heard your podcast with the great Captain LaShawn Hanna, who talked about the need to be intentionally inclusive, be for the fear of being unintentionally exclusive. I think he worded it something similar to that. And so I've always been a big proponent of starting with the most junior person first, because you certainly don't want to sway what they might say by starting with the senior folks first as well.
0: I love the way he said that too. And I'm trying to I was trying to remember exactly how he said it, but I don't want to repeat it because I might mess it up too. But you were close. You were really close to. I think, yeah. He said, "When we don't intentionally include, we unintentionally exclude." I think is how he said it. So he said it really succinctly. But yeah, I might have had it real close to. But yeah, something like that. But it's true, and I always I think about that too. When we have like these discussion settings you know, whether it's a large group versus a small group, but whenever they ask for questions and nobody asks any questions, I'm always like, what did we do here that created an environment that nobody has any questions? There should never be a situation where nobody has a question when you present new information that that just shouldn't exist. And so we we did something wrong. We presented the information not very well, or we created a climate where people don't feel comfortable. And so I'm always questioning that. What could we have done better to create an environment where somebody could have felt they could have asked that question. And so I always think that in, in whatever setting I'm in. And it just it strikes me that we we don't learn from it. We continue to do the same setting over and sometimes it's we just don't have very many logistics to choose from. We have limited spaces to do things in and so we think we have to do things the same way. And I love what the Coast Guard's doing right now with the talent management transformation task force. And I have the opportunity to be part of the organizational change management and the communications one. And I just have been amazed at how fast Admiral Ponoyer is moving these teams along with these things. And I I used to think, oh, government can't change things. Things move too slow. And I will tell you that if your organization is like that, too, you think things can't change. If you bring in the right people and with the right mindset, you can change things. You can you can bring an inclusive environment. You can find the right people because Admiral Punoyer is doing it with the Coast Guard. They're changing us from a an HR system to a talent management system, and it's really just changing the way we think about people. It's it's really getting us to think about how we manage the whole person, as Captain Kennedy talks about. And I think it's going to make us a way better Coast Guard in the long term, and our our climate's going to get a lot better long-term. And, um, but until then, I think, you know, we got to do exactly what Taylor's doing talking about too. We have to think about how we do that. On, I mean, even after we do that, we'll still have to think about those things, but it's, it's good stuff.
1: Can I, can I just dovetail on that quickly? I mean, yeah. I, I think it's such a great point about having the right, I don't know, I don't say, I'm using the term correctly, but the right change agent, the right personality, the right type of leadership to move those organizational strides more quickly than maybe we're accustomed to seeing in the past, which is so vital. But to the point about really soliciting and welcoming unfiltered feedback and perspective and candor, I mean, I would also note that we try to really strive to have one-on-one sessions with some of our members as well. And so whether that's in performance of their collateral duties or things of that nature that have kind of a sector-wide or a unit-wide impact, not just maybe a departmental or divisional, aspect to it. Those are really opportunities where I strive to say, okay, that project sounds like it's coming along great. Really appreciate you spearheading these issues. We've got kind of a way ahead on that. But hey, by the way, while you're here, how are things going? Anything new in your world? Uh, anything that, that the commander team could be doing better to support you all? And just how are things going in general? And I will tell you, it's in those very kind of small group settings as well, where you get that honest feedback where, you know, that person will probably leave that meeting and say, wow, the captain was asking me about this, that, and the other, and here's kind of his thoughts. And I gave him my recommendation and it sounds like we're going in that direction. Wow. So I, I really try to find opportunities, as you say, to make changes a little bit, much smaller scale within a command versus the service at large, but to, to show that folks have the opportunity and the access to uh, put forth their voice and their recommendations as they see it.
0: Well, that's wonderful thoughts. Wonderful. All right, last question. So, I love your thoughts on taking on opportunities and using those opportunities to challenge our weaknesses as well. So, share some of your thoughts on taking on opportunities.
1: Right. So, I mean, as folks in the in the service will know, whether coast guard or otherwise, you know, you have a lot of different collateral duties that, quite frankly, need to be fulfilled. So, whether that's the collateral duty public affairs officer, or the morale committee chairman, or the leadership diversity and advisory committee chair or vice chair, what have you. There are a whole slew of different ways that members can positively impact the quality of life within the command and the unit well beyond the sphere of their particular department or division that they're responsible for. And so what we always try to continually promote and encourage, especially our younger officers, but I would also say some of our younger chief petty officers, which is um, kind of the um, our senior enlisted core, if you will, at that level, is to really volunteer and think about stepping up to fill some of those collateral duties, which have a broad, wider level of impact. And so when you talk about opportunity, I will view it as an opportunity for personal professional growth. So some of those, as you know very well, Keith, involve more public speaking and standing up in front of a large group or having to coordinate with you know, the local news media, or some entity that you're not necessarily familiar with. And so we always strive to talk about the benefits of that, especially how that translates longer term in a person's career. But with that opportunity comes the access that I kind of alluded to earlier, which is, it's an, an access to any senior, mid-level, junior member of the command that you need to talk to, to carry out those duties. And so I think with that access comes an opportunity to get FaceTime, if you, as you will, face time with the the boss or the senior folks to a communicate your perspective to make suggestions on how to improve things. But b, I would argue it opens up the opportunity and access for personal mentorship and one on one career counseling or guidance or just advice in terms of things that people are maybe navigating with personally or professionally. So just uh, initial thoughts on that,
0: yeah, and I love it. And you know a lot of times in the world we'll hear people, you know whether you're you're going somewhere, you have to deal with someone on the phone. You'll deal with someone they have this mentality like that's not my job and it'll be frustrating because you have to get bounced around to different call centers or you'll deal with a bunch of people and it, it's the most frustrating mentality to have to deal with. And it's probably one of the most opposite of servant leadership mentalities out there dealing with someone who just pushes something off that could be you know readily done, but it's just not their job. So they don't do it. You know, a servant leader mindset is that servant leader mindset is exactly what Taylor's saying. It's looking for those opportunities to attack those weaknesses and do so in a way that expands your opportunities to make those connections we're talking about. Because as you do that, you're going to get connected to different people in different ways. And a lot of times, as Taylor's saying, those connections are going to help you in a different area. They're going to influence your path down the road somewhere. And especially as in the Coast Guard or military saying, as Taylor and I've seen, a lot of times those opportunities, which can sometimes feel like a dirty word because it's a lot more work as that old saying goes, opportunities are missed by most because they're dressed in coveralls and look like work or, or something like that. I think is how the saying goes. It's attributed to Thomas Edison, but they can't prove it was actually his quote. And, but you know, that's a lot of us, we cringe when we hear, I, ha- I have an opportunity for you. But the reality is, is that opportunity really is that. And it's going to lead to real, tangible opportunities in the long run. So I love the way Taylor approaches that. And he helps other people's find it. And when you have a great leader like Taylor on the other end of that, That is definitely going to lead to real tangible results at the end. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom to wrap us up as we close out today, Taylor?
1: Wow. I don't know about words of wisdom, but I would say this is um, I feel like in an increasingly competitive space for talent to retain and recruit the best and the brightest as any other organization is looking at doing, I feel like some of the things that we talked about, Keith, whether it be empathy or culture or explaining the greater purpose of why we serve, why we do what we do, I feel like that's just going to become increasingly more important. So us as servant leaders, as you talk about, we are obligated and we are responsible for making sure that we keep that at the forefront. And I just got to say, I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you. It is humbling to be a part of your podcast and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you. And I appreciate you being on and I appreciate all of you listening and liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast so that you and others can be edified. And thanks again for joining us and have a wonderful day.